device with your Bible on it, let's hold it up. I'm a child of God. Have in my hand the powerful Word of God. can change lives, heal broken hearts, save man's soul. Lord Jesus, today, speak to me. In Jesus' name, amen. Now look at your neighbor and just go, whoa. <laughs> When did you get here? <laughs> oh. On November 19, 1863, President Abraham Lincoln stood on the battlefield at Gettysburg to dedicate a portion of that land as a national cemetery. The featured speaker of the day was Edward, Edward Everett. He was acclaimed as possibly the greatest classical orator of his time, a former United States Senator, Governor of Massachusetts, President of Harvard University. He spoke for more than two hours to an audience of over 25,000 people. He was a masterful speaker. His speech was broad and its scope dramatic in its presentation. The musical interlude was brought by the Baltimore Glee Club. And then finally, President Lincoln formally introduced, and the people settled back in their chairs and on the grass to listen to him. Lincoln spoke simply and clearly and startled the people by the briefness of his remarks. I realize that most of you already are already familiar with what he said, but perhaps re-listen to a portion of it, especially the opening sentences, when he said, we are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as the final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men living and dead who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living, rather to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom and that government of the people, by the people, for the people shall not perish from the earth. Gettysburg does not stand alone in our memory. Time would fail if I should fail to mention such places as Valley Forge and Flanders Field, Omaha Beach, Iwo Jima, Porkchop Hill, Desert Storm, Iraq, and Afghanistan. But folks, we must realize that if freedom is to be carried on from generation to generation, if our children and our grandchildren are to enjoy freedom, then we must be willing to pay the price because freedom is never free. Freedom is never free. It sounds like a paradox uh, when you say it, but it is true. Freedom is never free. And in the same way, forgiveness is never free. 
That too sounds untrue at first. But before forgiveness takes place, there is always a price to be paid. We looked and read John 7, I mean, excuse me, Luke 7, 39. But I want us to spend a little more time in verses 36 through 39. It's an incident that the parable Jesus shares with us is of great importance. Now, I'm going to do a sermon different than I normally do. I'm going to give you a whole bunch of sermon, and then I'm going to tell you what it means, and that's where your outline fills in. So don't be trying to fill your outline in just yet. It'll be at the end, okay? So I wanted to give you, because you're going to try to fill it in, and it doesn't make any sense. What's he doing? Okay, just take a deep breath. All right, here we go. Speaking of verse 36. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to come have dinner with him, so... He went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And when a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, this was our verse we read, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. That she's a sinner. You see, Jesus had been invited to this home of this Pharisee by the name of Simon. And it's quite something because the Pharisees saw Jesus as really a threat to their power, to their teachings, to their legalistic system. They saw Jesus really as an enemy. Not all of them did, of course, but most of them resented him and resented his teaching. But this Pharisee invites Jesus to his home, and we're not exactly sure why, but he did invite him. And Jesus accepts the invitation. Well, let's take a look at the scene here. It was normal for when a guest arrived to make him feel welcome by going through certain common courtesies. We have some, in our day and age, when we have guests who come to our home. We have certain courtesies that we extend to them. But the one in this day, the first one would be that the feet of the person coming in would be washed. A guest's feet would be caked with dirt after they'd walked great distances in on dusty roads. So the servant would greet them at the door with a basin of water and wash and dry their feet. And after the feet had been washed, the host would then come and greet them with a kiss to make them feel welcome and let them know that they are honored and honored guests. Now we greet them at the door and we don't wash feet, but we usually handshake or we hug or we kiss a cheek and we let them know, depending on the depth of that relationship and that guest, and we let them know that we're grateful for them to be in our home. True? That's what we do. Then it's a matter of courtesy to anoint the head of the guest with some sweet-smelling cooling oil of this day. I'm sure the sun had been hot. Some of the men were thin on top. (laughs) We'll leave it at that. Probably slightly sunburned, and I'm not sure exactly why, but it was a customary thing to pour a little oil on their head and greet the guests. And all of that said, you're welcome in my home. But when Jesus visited the home of this Pharisee, none of those courtesies were extended. Luke says that Jesus sat down at the table without his feet being washed, without the customary kiss, without the anointing of oil. 
And as they began eating, something unusual happened. The woman, Luke calls her a sinner. And the word he uses here means an immoral woman, a prostitute. I mean, she, she was a sinner. Because, I mean, it's one thing to be a sinner, but if you're an immoral prostitute, you're really a sinner. Now, you could be a liar, but boy, if you're a prostitute, you're really a sinner. Oh, not all of you agree? Or do you agree? So, in other words, she's a worse sinner than a person who's a liar. Ah, good, okay. I thought maybe you were still in the posture of prayer. I thought maybe you waking up. And, and I don't know where they were eating, maybe on the outside, outdoor patio, maybe the evening breezes. She fell at the feet of Jesus and started weeping. Her tears fell on his feet. She dried them with her hair. She broke a vial of expensive perfume, anointed his feet, and began to kiss those feet. Simon the Pharisee's watching all this, greatly offended by what was going on, because it's obvious that he had failed to do what was right to do and the customary to do to welcome Jesus into his home, but this woman was doing it. And he knew what kind of woman she was, this Simon Pharisee. So he judges her. He judges Jesus. He assumes that Jesus, in not stopping her, is condoning her immorality. He thinks if this man really were a prophet, he would know she's an immoral woman. Jesus knows what Simon's thinking, and Jesus knew more than, about her than Simon did. And when Simon looked at, at her, all he saw was this prostitute sinner. That's all he saw. How often do you and I look at people, and all we see is the sin in their life? And do we ever look beyond the sin? Do we ever look at the potential that God could have in the life of that person. Jesus saw a repentant sinner, a precious soul, seeking to express her love and appreciation. Can you imagine? How would you? How would you carry yourself in the presence of Jesus? Would you stand off like Simon and judge her? Or maybe saddle up next to her and add your tears to hers. You've got to notice a couple things. Verse 37 begins with these words. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town... Well, I've got to ask you a question. Who doesn't live a sinful life in this town? Who doesn't live a sinful life in this town? Well, preacher, if you're talking about somebody that's like her, well, I'm certainly not like her at all. Well, you've committed just as big a sin by your arrogance and your judgment as she did with her body. If your Bible has a study Bible, it's as detailed footnotes at the bottom of the page, it will probably point the fact that she must have heard Jesus preach and in repentance she determined to lead a new life. That's the power of the gospel, is it not? He will find us where we are and help us convert where we need to and make a difference in somebody else's life. Ooh. 
Ooh, it's that simple, isn't it? Why do we make it hard? You gotta wear a certain type of clothing, you gotta act a certain way, you gotta behave a certain way, you gotta throw your hands up, don't throw your hands up, you gotta speak out, don't speak out, you gotta say amen, don't say amen. <laughs> right? We do that. We put all these regulations on, on people. Kind of like the Jews who were converted to Christianity that said you gotta be circumcised to be a real Christian. Really? Paul said that has to be in your heart. Your heart has to be circumcised. You've got to be changed in here. Because it's not about the outward appearance. In just a few minutes, we're going to read verse 47 where Jesus says, Her many sins have been forgiven. I think we need to safely conclude that Jesus had met her before, had already forgiven her. She had become one of his followers, and that's why she had followed him this evening. But let's continue and pick up at verse 40. Jesus said, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owned, owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. You know, he says that one owed 500 the other 50 uh, and don't try to translate it into dollars. Just, just do it this way. It's easy to get confused. A denarius represented a day's wage. So one owed the equivalent of 50 working days. The other owed 500 working days. Using a five-day work week, one man owed 10 weeks. The other 100 weeks or almost two years. Jesus says, Simon, neither of them could pay their debts, so the money lender tells them, I know that you don't have the money, so I'm going to cancel your debts, and you no longer owe me anything. Now then, Simon, which one will love him more? Well, again, I imagine that Simon sitting there with his mouth open, first of all, thinks of that money lender, that he wouldn't collect what is owed him, seemed to be very unreal. He couldn't imagine it, that type of thing happening to, with money lenders, at least the ones that he knew. Secondly, he was probably trying to figure out why Jesus was telling him this story at all. He couldn't see any point to it. That's what happens when we're spiritually blind. We can't see. When we blind ourselves by our own prejudices, when we blind ourselves by our own sin, we can't see the sin that's so ever before us. Jesus was more than likely saying, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled, you've judged correctly. Now pick it up at verse 44. So he turns toward the woman and says to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. When you have tasted forgiveness, great grace shown to your life, you in turn can show it to others. When you've never experienced the grace of God in your own life, or you've become a believer 
years ago. And you knew about that special grace of God then. And you've just grown up in a certain type of way. And you've developed these traditions in your life that somehow others have placed on you because they sound scriptural. And so we're going to be a certain way. Yes, we are. And you've forgotten the great grace that saved you too. Because it's easier to extend grace when you've been shown it, <laughs> when you've received it, than when you don't have any idea what it's about. The older I get, the more I understand the grace of God. I understand it. Wasted a lot of years worried about stuff that really doesn't matter because the grace of God is what's important. So how does this passage deal with patriotism and remembering the, those that have given themselves for our freedom cause? Well, I'm glad you asked that. Number one, now we're at your outline. Everyone is in debt. Everyone of us is a debtor. Every person in this room owes a debt to society, to our nation, to our God. We're all debtors. When you are born, you're in debt. Well, I'm not talking about the national debt. It's out of control. <laughs> I mean, you could absolutely cool yourself off by how fast that debt clock is spinning. Have you ever seen that? And it's getting so long, it's hard to keep up with all the numbers, isn't it? It's amazing, actually, that we spend over $600,000 an hour in this country. I, I don't need nearly that much. If they could just cut me a check for just, you know, a third of it, I, I'd be good. Amen? But we're all debtors. When we're born into this world, we become debtors to God. You know that? Because had he not sent Jesus to die on the cross, we would have no hope. So we're in debt to him purchasing our salvation. And he did it at the cross. Atonement, regeneration, those are words that leave people scratching their heads. But they're powerful words. Atonement means I'm at one with God. Regeneration says I once was dead, now I'm alive. I once was dead, now I'm alive. Last Sunday I could barely stand on my knee. I went and got a steroid shot in my knee. Wow. How nice that's been. For a few days. <laughs> the only thing I can do with my knee is replace it. To make it feel better. But every step I take, I'm reminded that I can't wait for the new body. <laughs> sure want that new one. Then I can eat all the ice cream I want and nobody's going to give me a hard time. I imagine when Simon looked at himself, he thought, you know, God, you're lucky to have me on your team. How many of you feel that way as a Christian? Kind of glad that God's got you. 
Because really, he'd be struggling if he didn't have you part of the team. Amen? Boy, if you're there, you better get off of there. If you've got yourself on that pedestal, get off. Because when you fall, it's going to hurt a whole lot more than you thought. That's why I stand on the floor, because I fell off the stage a few years ago. Some of you remember. And uh, Jeff Harmon reminded me of that this morning. He said, hey, we've got this all open. We can put mattresses up here for you in case you fall. Yeah, thanks. That's what, that's what they did the next Sunday, is they brought air mattresses in line the front for me to fall on. That was very nice of them. But you know, Simon just really thought he was a pretty good old guy. He's a Pharisee. I mean, after all, he mastered the law. He knew it all. But it's easy to forget that we're in debt. It's very easy. We put hamburgers on the grill. We sit around tomorrow and forget about the blessings. Forget, forget about all those who've given their life so that you and I can enjoy grilling hot dogs and hamburgers tomorrow. Going to the lake and having a great time. Stop somewhere in that process and thank God for everyone that's given themselves on our behalf. And the families that have given themselves and given of their loved ones. We owe a debt on those who've gone before us. And we owe a great debt to God who's redeemed us and forgiven us. Secondly, we can never repay that debt. We can never repay the debt. If my creditors should decide to collect everything that I owe all at once, I'm in deep trouble. Now, I'm working on getting out of debt, but I'm not there yet. And if they all call tomorrow, I'll say, whoop, time to pay the piper. We're coming to get it all. <laughs> okay. I'll have to sell Cindy. She'll, she'll, be the, she'll be the balancing factor because she's worth more than they could ever hope to charge me for. So I'll just have to sell her. She'd try to sell me and they'd bring me back. So, you know. I couldn't pay it off. There's no way. There's no way. If all my creditors call tomorrow and say, we've got to have it, I couldn't pay it. So I'm grateful. I'm grateful that the debt that I could not pay, God did for me at Calvary. Now let's go back to our story. The woman came to Jesus, fell to his feet, wet his feet with her tears, dried them with her hair, anointed him with oil, all expressions of gratitude and love. And you might say, you know, that's a great way to pay God back, isn't it? Well, she wasn't paying him back. She was doing, all she was saying was, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. So see, when we serve the Lord, when we serve outside ourselves, when we help someone else, we're simply saying, thank you, Lord. There's no debt to be paid. It's already been paid. We're just saying, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for lifting the burden. And that's all we really can do. We can never pay him back. But we can do all, all that. and we can, we can spend time doing what we need to do to serve the Lord. I'm so proud of our young people. We went John 3.16 on uh, the fourth Wednesday. And I had forgotten all about it with the Bible conference. And uh, someone reminded me that we hurriedly got down there. We were late. And the whole crew at John 3.16, the kitchen was new. <laughs> and they, they looked at me and had that look on their face. And they said, we really don't know what to do. I just turned to our teenager and said, you do, so go. Man, it was just like locusts. They were gone. 
And they started putting tea together, started putting ice in the cups, and started getting it all ready to go, just like that. Boom, boom, boom. They kept asking the person, hey, you got this, you got this, you got this? And the guy going, oh, yeah, blah, yeah, blah, yeah, blah, you know. And we, we fed over 100 people, just like that. It was awesome. Why? Because our kids knew what to do. I was proud of them. They jumped in, and they worked, and they weren't afraid to work. And you need to know that. Third thing I want you to know and take away from this today is that forgiveness is available to everybody. Forgiveness is available to everybody. We are spiritually in debt. We can never repay the debt. And since we can't pay it, we stand in need of forgiveness. We need somebody who can pay it. And guess what? The, the debt's been paid. And not only was it paid according to Ephesians, He gave us the Holy Spirit as a guaranteed deposit that He's going to save us. <laughs> not only did God do what He did, but then He gave us a guarantee. He said, here's my Holy Spirit. This is my guarantee. He didn't have to do any of that. He could put His thumb on us and snuff us out just like that. But He didn't. He loved us. Whew. Forgiveness always costs something, doesn't it? The money lender found out that it cost him. God found out that it cost him. Well, he didn't find out. He already knew. Mark made an interesting statement during our, during our Bible conference. He said, you know, nothing comes to God. He doesn't just go, oh, wow. <laughs> he already knew it. He already knows it. He doesn't, he, he doesn't just go, oh. Unlike the giant, when David hit him with a rock, who said, wow, nothing like that's ever entered my mind before. <laughs> yeah. It's a joke. Come on, come on. Yeah. Now, when i got to drag it out of you, it's not any fun. Forgiveness. We've got it. It's ours. It's a gift. Christ purchased it for us. And it's also true of our freedom. The price has been paid. It's available to all this land. That's why we rejoice at the Declaration of Independence. That's why we rejoice at the Statue of Liberty because freedom is available to all in this great land. Robert McCormick was a sergeant in World War I. He nearly lost his life while saving the life of Major Henry Parkin. Both men survived the war, and from that day on until he died 25 years later in April of every year, Parkin would write McCormick a letter of gratitude. And the last letter that Parkin wrote contained this brief note. Dear Bob, I again want to express to you my appreciation for another year of life which I would not have enjoyed had it not been for you and the price you were willing to pay to save my life. I want you to know I am grateful. Today, God's forgiveness is available. He offers it to us through Jesus Christ, His Son, that price has been paid, paid in full. Are you grateful? Are you grateful? Heavenly Father, we ask you this morning to make us grateful. Help us to remember that without you, we have nothing. Grace and mercy. And at the cross, we find both. Father, would you touch the lives of everyone in this room today and reassure them of that great presence and that great victory that we have through Jesus. If somebody needs to make a decision today, would they do it in Jesus' name?
Amen. Let's stand. Sing our song.